We usually teach through books of the Bible here, and we've already been through Matthew before, but we are now in the middle of, or toward the end of Romans. But for Resurrection Sunday, we're going to take a look at the resurrection today. If you follow along with me in your Bibles, we'll look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 15. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I want to speak to you this morning on those who were last at the cross, but first to the tomb. Last at the cross, but first to the tomb. In our Good Friday service, we talked about glorying in the cross. We talked about what it meant why we call it Good Friday, why we believe that the cross is something that we adore, even though it's an instrument of death. It's an instrument of physical pain. But when we look as believers at the cross, we find hope. We find forgiveness. We find love. We find peace. We find grace. But you can't truly understand the resurrection until you've been to the cross. Have you ever noticed when Hollywood portrays these movies, whether it's Passion of the Christ or other ones, um, usually when it comes to the resurrection, they kind of spiritualize it somehow. It's not by their own doing. It's not their fault. They, they just don't know how to do it. How would you show Christ rising from the dead? So usually they'll see the body there and then they'll play some music and maybe some light and mirrors and then all of a sudden you see Jesus again walking around. But you don't really witness the resurrection. 
I mean, the death of Jesus is always very real. They make the suffering and, you know, the driving of the nails through his feet, his hands, the lashes that he's received, and you see him hanging on a cross, bloodied and beaten. And you can almost feel the pain as you watch those portrayals of Christ's suffering. But when it comes to the resurrection, somehow you just see and hear this music and maybe some mist and, you know, they can't really pull it off. Well, on that resurrection morning, I mean, I think if the resurrection was like Hollywood portrays it to be, I don't think Thomas or any other other disciples would have really believed him. They wouldn't have believed it. They wouldn't have believed such a story. See, the only resurrection that counts for anything is the resurrection of Christ's physical body. If that did not happen, beloved, we are still lost in our sin. Because if Christ hadn't risen from the grave, the cross would be meaningless. The cross would mean nothing to us. Because he wouldn't have fulfilled what he promised to do. He wouldn't have fulfilled what his father promised to do. He wouldn't have been God, in all honesty. Because the cross was where Christ paid for our sins. But if he wasn't able to come out of that grave, that death, that horrible death that he went through, would have been just like every other horrible death during his time. It wouldn't have mattered. He would have just been another human guy, a martyr, suffering for some dream that he had. And I think it's so important that when Christ, we understand that when Christ paid for our sin on the cross, I shared this this morning at the sunrise service, I said, you know, when, when Christ paid for our sins on the cross, he wrote the check. But when the, the Father, when the, 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 the power of God brought him out of the grave, that's when the check cleared. Have you ever written a check? Have you ever been a little nervous about, oh, when's it going to clear? I have. <laughs> and it's kind of refreshing when you go online and you say, oh, yeah, good, it went through, good. <laughs> Money left, but the check cleared, that's good. Well, you know what? When Christ rose from the dead, that's when that check cleared. That's when he was victorious over sin and death. And nothing in Hollywood can depict that. Nothing. See, the disciples were able to know that the resurrection was real. The reason they knew, knew it was real was because they touched his body after they saw it dead on a cross. And that's what caused them to go out into every obscure corner of the earth through the Roman Empire and tell the world of the gospel. Paul himself believed in this kind of resurrection and he knew that it was basic to the Christian faith. And as Bob read this morning out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says in verse 3, For I delivered as to you of first importance 
that I also, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He doesn't stop there. That he was buried and that he was raised, what, on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, if Christ doesn't come out of the grave, you can take this book and, and throw it away. It means nothing. Paul goes on in verse 5, he says, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Paul says most of them are still alive, though some have died, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. See, that's why Paul says that I'm an apostle born out of due time. Because I wasn't with the others. I didn't hang with Jesus when he was here. But he made a special trip back when I was on the road of Damascus going my way to murder Christians for my faith as a Pharisee thinking he was doing the right thing. And Christ intercepted him on that road. And immediately he was changed because he saw the risen Christ Later on in that chapter, as Bob read, he says, if the resurrection does not occur, then Christianity is just another story of of an empty hope. And those who believe in that empty hope are still lost in their sins. Well, why is that? It's because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, beloved, Jesus was mistaken when he announced to the world that he would rise. He was mistaken that he was the divine son of God. A delusion of grandeur, you might say. And if he is not God, his death on the cross was not true atonement for our sins. Now, when you come to the the, the resurrection of Christ and you read through the gospel records, each writer has a way of telling this story about the resurrection. And Matthew is no exception. Matthew, along with the the other apostles, tell about the soldiers they sent to guard the tomb and how they were shaken by an angel. And, And this guarding of the tomb wasn't something they just did, you know, as a side job. This was their job. Their head was on the line. Their life was on the line with this. It was a very big thing to be sent to guard something for a ruler. And you better make sure that you do a good job. But he also tells about Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the mother of James, who made it to the tomb, says, on the first day of the week. And how the angel appeared to them with the first announcement of Christ's victory says in verses 5 to 7, he says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus. I know what you're doing here. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified. Well, guess what? He's not here. He's risen just as he what? Said. You don't believe me? Come to the place, he says, and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now, you read through the different gospel accounts, there's different stories, there's different facts involved with each one. And a lot of the 
critics over the years that, oh, this disproves the Bible because the stories aren't the same. Well, no. It's just different people telling their story from their own perspective. For example, Matthew mentions two women. Mark mentions three. Luke also refers to three by name, and then he speaks of the others. John mentions only Mary. That's fine. I mean, if I said, yeah, I was at church today and I spoke to Ken, that doesn't mean you people weren't here. Right? I mean, just because someone doesn't mention you doesn't mean you weren't present. There's no discrepancies here. Another discrepancy that people point out, alleged discrepancy, is that they wonder about the time that the the women set out. Matthew says that it was at dawn. Mark says it was very early, just after sunrise. By the way, if you missed the sunrise service this morning, you missed a glorious time. It was beautiful. It was just, it was pleasant. It wasn't that windy or anything. It was just nice. We saw the sun come up and we had a wonderful time of praise and worship. Luke says it was very early. John writes, while it was still dark. So you have these different perspectives. These aren't discrepancies because we trust the word of God. We know it to be true. It's proven itself time and time again. These are just people telling partial parts of the story. If there were two angels, there certainly was one. So it's easy to understand those things. And we're not here to do a whole apologetic on that. But I just want you to to know that that is nothing that shakes my faith. Well, what happened that morning? What are the events of resurrection morning? I mean, you can put all the details together in one story. Jesus had been crucified either on Friday. Some people believe maybe even Thursday. It doesn't really matter. The fact is that he was crucified. In any case, Jesus was in the tomb until the resurrection, which certainly took place before dawn on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. At this point, Jesus was in the tomb until the resurrection. The woman came to the tomb from Jerusalem. They came with spices, the Bible says, to anoint his body because they couldn't do it when he was crucified because of the Sabbath. Probably at least five women. Some commentators believe more. Matthew here mentions Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark adds Solomon. Luke writes of the two Marys, Johanna and others. But these women started out while it was still dark. And they arrived at the tomb very early in the morning. The reason I showed you that video is because sometimes people will come to church once a, once a year, as Ken mentioned, maybe Christmas or Easter. And that video just kind of brings you up to speed. <laughs> you know, you see Christ suffering, you see him hanging on the cross, and wow, he's in the grave, and boom, he's risen. So they came to anoint his, his body, and on reaching the tomb, they were astonished. They were blown away by the fact that the stone had been moved. And we're not talking just a small little stone here. We're talking probably a stone that was a good eight, nine feet and round. 
that can be rolled out of the way. But it probably took several people to do it, several strong soldiers to do this. Plus, you remember, they had the guards that were supposed to be guarding this tomb. And they probably saw this from a distance as the light dawned upon the grave. And they probably paused and said, look, the stone's been moved. They probably froze in their, in their, in their steps. They were probably maybe afraid to move any closer to the grave. And as the light continued to grow brighter as the sun rose, they were wondering what happened. Who moved the stone? Did somebody come and steal the body of Christ? I mean, that's a logical explanation for them because grave robbing at the time was very common. It was something that was a very common crime in the ancient world because most people would be buried with certain things that were maybe of value to them. So grave robbers would come and they would steal those. The women are probably thinking, hey, are the the grave robbers still here? Is it safe to be here? Or did Pilate order the body to be removed for some reason? See, all the stories kind of give you this dialogue. And at last they decide, you know what? I think we need to go tell the disciples about what we're seeing here, guys. So Mary Magdalene was sent back to the city to find them. And not one of them imagined that Jesus had actually been risen from the dead. You know, and sometimes I think just because they were in the presence of Christ for all that time, the disciples. Do you remember how many times he would tell them, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die? And it just went over their head. And so when Christ was actually hanging on a cross and he was dead, what happened? They just looked and went, well, this is not the way this is supposed to work out. We're supposed to be kicking the Romans out of Jerusalem right now and taking back our land and, and, and overthrowing this bondage that we're under. And Christ is supposed to be leading the way. He's our Messiah. He's our leader. And there he is, hanging on a cross. So they were very disheartened. But it's kind of, when the women arrive here at the tomb, they don't say, oh, he rose as he, as he said. No, that's not where they go. They probably wonder a lot of different things. And while the light began to grow bolder and, or, or brighter, the women began to grow bolder and they decided to look into the tomb. Kind of an eerie thing. You're in a place where someone was buried and you're kind of peeking in this tomb in the early, early sunrise. And they saw angels, the Bible says. The women were afraid, but an angel told them not to be afraid. That's the way people always respond when they see an angel. They're always fearful. They're fearful. They're fearful because they're seeing just a a small part of the glory of God. We would be fearful too. We would have to be told, do not be afraid. (laughs) And the angel told them not to be afraid, but he said, Jesus was risen. And that you're to go and tell the disciples. 
So Mary had found the two chief disciples, Peter and John, and the Bible tells us that we don't know where the other ones were, basically, or in the city or whatever, but they found Peter and John. And the two disciples immediately start just beelining it for the tomb. Can't believe this. What's going on? And they left Mary in the dust. You know, not a very courteous thing to do, but they just left her in the dust. They're like, hey, see you later. Took off. John was younger, so he actually reaches the tomb first. And he stooped and looked through the narrow opening. And the Bible says that he saw the grave clothes. He saw the grave clothes. The word he uses there in the original language is the word blepo. basically means just nothing more than seeing it. He just saw it. He probably saw it from a distance. He wasn't about to go in and do anything more than that. And you can imagine Peter huffing and puffing, finally getting there. And just like Peter, out of breath, in a hurry as usual, shoves John aside. Let me, let me check this thing out. And he rushes into the tomb. And when John saw those grave clothes, he saw them in a, just a kind of a cursory manner, just out from outside the tomb. But when Peter arrives, the word that they use there is the word that we get our word theory from or theorize. It has the idea that he went in to inspect these clothes firsthand, Peter. Am I seeing this for real? He was trying to figure things out. And John, who tells this part of the story, because he was there and he lived through it, he records what Peter saw. It says in John 20, verses 6 to 7, he saw the the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. So they weren't just, you know, ragtag bunch of cloths there. And at last, John enters the tomb also, and he begins to see what Peter had seen. And it has the idea, that word see there is to see with understanding. He's beginning to put the, the pieces of the puzzle together. To believe in the resurrection of his Lord and Savior. I mean, John understood that the only way to explain the unusual arrangement of these grave clothes was that somehow Jesus' body just had passed right through them. It's not like somebody went in there and tore the grave clothes off him or that Jesus tore them off him. His glorified body just kind of went right through it. And he also did that later on in the Gospels, too. If you're wondering, he would appear. He would walk through a door that's closed. It gives us something to look forward to. Because we'll one day have a glorified body. I'm kind of looking forward to that. But after this, the appearances of our Lord began. And, And Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene who arrived back at the tomb after Peter and John had returned to the city. He appeared to the women next, then to Peter alone, then to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. 
Finally, later that night, all the disciples who were gathered together in the upper room. That's what the gospel accounts tell us. And the way all this fits together, it's, it's, it's kind of compelling when you put it all together. Matthew Arnold once said this. He said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best attested fact in all of history. Lawyers in, a particular, in particular have found this to be true. One was a very famous English lawyer, Sir Edward Clark. He wrote this, As a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidences for the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. As a lawyer, I accept it as the testimony of men to the facts that they were able to substantiate. See, whether you believe it or not, whether you attest to the resurrection of Jesus Christ or not, doesn't really matter. Because <laughs> it's facts. It's fact. It happened. And if you doubt there's a room full of people here right now, we'll tell you, no, it happened. And the reason I know it happened is because it changed me. And it can change you the same way it has changed many people all over the world. Well, this morning, I just want to look at these four imperatives here. Because at this point, neither Peter nor John had seen the resurrected Lord. He was seen by the women first. It's kind of interesting that those who had been last at the cross were now first at the tomb. That's why I say, you know what, you have to linger at the cross to fully comprehend what the resurrection even means. If you don't understand the suffering of the cross, and you don't understand the payment that Christ paid for your sins and mine in full, complete he doesn't just, you know, put a down payment. No, it's, it's complete payment. Complete satisfaction, the Bible says. Until you understand that, until you understand your need for such a payment to be made on your behalf. Because the last time I checked, none of us are perfect. Not a one of us. The Bible says very clearly, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We have all come short. Each and every one of us. And even if you could die on a cross, it wouldn't be good enough because you wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice. And that's what Christ, that's what God demanded. A perfect sacrifice. And the only person that fulfilled the qualifications to become that perfect sacrifice was Jesus Christ, the God-man, the, the God who came down and was born of a virgin and lived a life of perfection. And yet he willingly went to a cross and he willingly gave up his life. They didn't kill him. He gave his life up. He gave his life up for you and for me. He wanted us to understand forgiveness. He wanted us to understand victory over sin and death. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what is in your life. There's no way for me to know that unless you told me. But you know what? He does. God knows exactly what you're going through. God knows exactly what you've been through, what you're going to go through. He knows everything about us. 
And he says, you know what? Come closer. I want you to to see some things. Well, Jesus met them on their way home after they had gone to the tomb. They saw the angels. They heard about Jesus' resurrection. And the angels' message here contains four imperatives in verses 6 to 7 here. And the first one is simply the imperative, come. Come. You see it there in verse 6. It says, he is not here, he is risen, as he said, come. The first of the angels' imperative was simply to come. It's an important statement because there's a lot that probably would have prevented the women from coming and checking this out. The place itself might have hindered them. I mean, here they are in a graveyard early in the morning. They might have, as soon as the, saw the stone was moved away, they said, hey, it's not safe here. Let's get out of here. Let's, let's come back when it's brighter, when it's lighter, when there's more people around. Besides, this tomb is supposed to be guarded by Roman soldiers. What if they think we're having something to do with moving this stone? Maybe fear of Rome could have prevented them or hindered them from coming. See, the fact that this stone was removed really made a statement. It said, you know what? Roman was defied. And you don't do that lightly. There's an implication of a crime here. They might have said, you know what, we can't go any closer. You know, we're not going to come any closer because Rome forbids it. Maybe their sin hindered them. I mean, something happened here. Maybe they thought this was kind of like sacred ground. We can't go in there. Something weird happened here. This almost seems like holy ground. Maybe they didn't feel worthy to come. None of this stopped them, though. As you know, the invitation to come was from God. And they recognized the voice of God in the invitation, and they obeyed it. See, when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is that? It's the Lord inviting you to come. He's speaking to you when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you what? Rest. Are you tired? Are you tired of constantly trying to fight against sin and and, and fight against everything that's out there in the world? Jesus says, come to me. If you're weary, if you're burdened, come to me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. See, I don't care what the psychologist tells you. God is not like your dad. God is not like your earthly father. There's a lot of people that are messed up because maybe they didn't have a great relationship with their dad. And so when they come to God, they're just like, no way. They transfer all that bad experience right over to God. You know what? God is not your earthly father. 
He wants to give you rest. Jesus says he's gentle, he's humble in heart. He's not prideful and arrogant. And the Bible says that you will find rest for your souls. You know, your soul is the most cherished thing that you have. It should be. A lot of people don't realize that. Your soul is eternal. Because we can't see it. We forget how cherished our soul should be. If I came up to you and said, hey, you know what? Uh, you got two good eyes. I'll give you 10000 for one of your eyes. I don't think you would give me it to me. How about if I said a million dollars? I don't even think you would do that. You know what? I'll give you $2 million for both your eyes. How's that? I don't think you would do it. That's a lot of money. How about $10 million? You probably wouldn't. Why? Because you cherish the idea that you can see every day. And yet, something like our soul, we just kind of throw it aside. That doesn't matter. Let me ask you a question. Have you come? Have you obeyed that invitation? Come to me. That's a direct invitation from Christ to your heart. There can be no knowledge of God, no salvation, no growth in the Christian life until you're willing to do just that, to come. Well, let's look at the second imperative. The second imperative here, he says in verse 6, not just come, but come see. (laughs) Come see. The angel said, come and see the place where he lay. Do you ever think what you should see when you look inside that tomb? When you look into the tomb of Christ, what should you see? Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached a message on this verse. And he suggests five things that we should see when we look into the tomb of Christ. First of all, he says that we should see in Christ's grave the condescension of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not a a man for whom death would be natural. Jesus is who? Jesus is God, the Bible says. He was with the Father from all eternity, and he'll be with him forevermore. We would never expect Jesus to die, just like the disciples didn't expect him to die. But Jesus did just that. He, in fact, died for you. He died for me. And we should marvel at that condescension of such an amazing God that he would be able to place himself in a tomb to save us. Secondly, Spurgeon says that we should see the horror of our sin. When we look into the tomb of Christ, we should see the horror of our sin. say, well, why is that? Because it was our sin that put him there. Death is the punishment for sin, beloved. That's what the Word of God says. Death is a punishment for sin. The last time I checked, Jesus didn't have any sin. He was sinless. He was perfect. Why then did Jesus die? The answer is clear. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed, what? For our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. 
See, when we look into the tomb, we begin to see the horror of our own sin. And we develop a proper hatred for it. Thirdly, he says that we should look into the tomb to be reminded. This is kind of morbid, morbid in a way, but it's the truth that we too will die. It was interesting this morning at the sunrise service, I opened up and I said, you know, it's such a wonderful thing to stand here on this hillside up at Skyline Memorial. Where so many families, loved ones and individuals have stood on these very grounds. Celebrating the life of someone that they knew. But they don't live anymore. They're dead. And they've put them in the ground. And they put some flowers there. Maybe they go up on occasion. And you think of the, the tears that have been shed on that piece of property. Over the many years that it's been there. And yet it's such a glorious thing to gather there as believers and realize that, you know what? Death has no hold on us. The mere fact that Christ rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death. But when we look into that tomb, we should realize that, you know what? We're going to die. Pending the Lord's return, we will all meet the fate of death. We can look around this room and we can count numbers of people that are no longer here with us to worship on this Resurrection Sunday. Why? Because they died. Most of them have gone on to be with the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why would you want to stay here anyway? See, unless the Lord returns for his own before that moment, we also will die and will be separated from those that we know and we love. See, the tomb speaks of our our mortality. It warns us that, you know what, there's a life beyond this life. And you better get prepared. You don't just die and put you in a box and that's it, game over. No, there's eternal life. We're all eternal. The question is, where will you spend eternity? Will it be in the presence of God through the sacrifice of Christ? Or will it be in the torments of hell? And fourthly, he says, we must look into the tomb to see that Jesus is not in it. (laughs) He's not in it. He's risen, just as he said. He conquered death. The empty tomb is one of the, the, the great evidences of the resurrection itself. Whether in the New Testament or in the secular sources of time, there is not one attempt to deny that this grave was empty. Now they give all kind of explanations why it's empty, but it was empty. There was no body there. Literally. Come up with all kinds of silly things. Maybe the disciples stole the body. But nowhere has any writer denied that the tomb was empty. Well, what can account for that? See, if the the body had somehow been stolen, they would have produced it later. When the resurrection was proclaimed by by Jesus' followers and said, see, yeah, we got the body, he wasn't resurrected. 
the enemies of Christ have stolen. If the disciples of Christ stole it, if they stole the body, they would not have been willing to die for something that wasn't even real. Come and think about it. It would have been a fabrication. See, the only explanation, the only adequate explanation, when you put all the facts on the line of the empty tomb, is that Jesus had been raised from the dead, just as the Bible teaches. The movie out called Case for Christ. That's a nice little family movie. You can go see it. And it just tells the story of Lee Strobel and, and his coming to Christ. It's not really a... Um, more of a movie of his life and his testimony of how he came to Christ. It doesn't really go through all the facts of the book that he wrote, A Case for Christ, by the way, is a wonderful book. If you're having any doubts about anything we're talking about, get that book, A Case for Christ. It covers everything from why we believe the Bible to be true to the point of why the resurrection must be true. And it gives you all evidence, biblical, secular. It's all in one place. Case for Christ. But the fifth reason Spurgeon says that we should look into the tomb is to learn that we also will rise just as Jesus did. See, because we're joined to him through our relationship of Christ, we're joined to him. Jesus did not come to earth merely to teach, die, rise again, so that in the end he might lose those whom he died. He came to save his own completely, to take them to heaven, to be with him. And when we look into the tomb, we're assured that one day we will be with him and we'll be just as he is. 1 John 3, 2 says that. So we come, we see. The third imperative here is to go. He says in verse 7, then go quickly. Go quickly. It's a strong reminder, really, of how tempting it must have been to hang out at the tomb. I mean, it's a historical event happened. I mean, this is a supernatural place. Somebody that was dead is now no longer there. And the grave clothes are there. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you, you could set up shop there and charge a mission. And people would come and, and see it. And they do that with the shroud, right? I mean, it's kind of crazy, but that's what they do. And so they needed to be told to go because they wanted to linger there. They wanted to stay there. But you know what? Work had to be done. You have to move on. And this is the way the gospel ends, of course, for the last words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 28 are what? Go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Jesus tells us very clearly what our game plan is to be. A lot of people put the emphasis on the going in that great commandment. But it's really not. If you were to just, if I were to reverse that the way it really, the original language indicates it should read, it should be, as you are going, make disciples. As you are going, 
And we're all going. We're all going to get up in a couple minutes here. And we're going to leave. We're going to walk out through these doors. We're going to be going somewhere. Whether it's over to Fellowship Hall for coffee and donuts or wherever. You're going to be going. And what is he saying? He's saying make disciples. You take the message of the resurrection. You take the message of of new faith in Christ with you. And you share that with people. And that brings us to the, the fourth imperative here. As you are going, tell. He says, he is not here. He is risen from the dead. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and what? Tell his disciples. I think it's in the right order, by the way. I think there's a reason why this came last. For if we've come to the tomb, if we've seen the tomb is empty, we know that Jesus Christ has risen and then obeyed Jesus by going into the world, in our sphere of influence. Clearly, it would be unconscionable not to speak of what you know. We must say to people, he is not here. He's risen, just as he said. And that's a powerful, astonishing news. And it's good news. I would even go to say is, if we do not tell people that good news, our actions can only be the result of unbelief. Or maybe we don't even understand how great and powerful and astonishing the gospel is. Sometimes people who come to Christ fail to understand just the dynamic of the relationship that they're in with the God who created them. They forget. Because they come to church, they go to prayer meeting, they go to Bible study, they pray before they eat at a restaurant, they do all the stuff. And we fail to understand that, you know what, most of the world is not experiencing the relationship that we have with our Creator. So we need to come, we need to see, we need to go, and we need to tell. Now, there was probably opposition for the women who went to the tomb. They weren't the only ones who knew about the resurrection, according to Matthew. The soldiers also knew about it. (laughs) They were present when the angel rolled away the stone. Says they were terrified. They went and they told the religious leaders what had happened. The angels came, they opened the tomb, the body's not there. When Jesus was dying on the cross, beloved, the leaders taunted him. Do you remember this? Matthew 27, 27, 42, he says, Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. But now Jesus had done something far even greater than that. He had been raised from the dead. But did they believe? No. They didn't believe. They could not believe because they would not believe. They hated Christ. They hated Jesus. 
So they drew the soldiers into this evil conspiracy. And we're going to give you a lot of money to do this. And the reason they had to give them a lot of money is because their lives were on the line. And if it comes to the point where the, the religious leaders or the, the Roman leaders want your guys' head, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll stick up for you. We'll make up something else. So the soldiers were bribed. And it says this story had been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. What day? Well, Matthew meant the day upon his writing this gospel. But you know what? The lie of the leaders didn't end with them. This is a lie that's been repeated throughout history, beloved. Even to our own day. There are those who are enemies of Jesus. There are enemies of the gospel. You don't have to look far to see this. I guess what I would ask you this morning is, are you an enemy? Or have you come and saw and are willing to go and tell the wonderful resurrection of Christ? William Barclay talked about a, a book that really um, attacked the, the resurrection of Christ. And it's, it's, so, it's so important that we understand that, you know what, there's going to be many, many people who are against this belief. Because if you can disprove the resurrection somehow, nothing else matters. <laughs> and that is so true. Jesus said this in Luke uh, 16.31. He's teaching in the parable of the rich man Lazarus. He said... If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Isn't that amazing? Christ knew exactly where their hearts were. But you know what? Those who have been given to Christ by the Father, we do believe. And we know that it's God who draws us into that faith in Christ. It's not something that we conjure up on our own. It's not something that we can do on our own. It's not something we try to perform religious works. We understand that it's solely by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of works, lest any man should boast, the Bible says. See, we need to take that good news to those who are lost. Well, you know that Jesus died. There's no doubt about that. I trust you know that he died for you. You know that he rose from the dead. The question God is asking you is very simple. Very simple question. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Who is Jesus Christ to you? See, that's the inescapable question. 
Because He alone is the only one who can redeem you. He alone is the only one who can free you from the power and penalty of your sin. He is the only one who can transform you. To restore you to fellowship with God and to give your life eternal purpose. Not just purpose for the next 24 hours. Close with a question. Will you turn your sin? Will you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Join me in prayer. Father, we pray today. And we thank you for the glory, not only of the cross, but the wonderment of the resurrection. And we thank you, Lord, because we're willing to spend time at the cross. The resurrection means even more to us. It just upholds your character. It upholds your honesty. It upholds who you are as our God. That you won't say one thing and do another. You're not in the business of baiting and switching us. It's not a shell game we're talking about here. It's God giving us eternal truth and that truth that we can live and die upon. Because it's that truth that affects us to the very core. It makes us, makes us new people in Christ when we're willing to come to the cross and to bear our sin and leave it there knowing that he paid for it and turning to you and asking you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That prayer alone, if it's prayed from a sincere heart, is a prayer that will save you. It will give you new life in Christ. Old things will pass away. Behold, all things will become new. You'll still be the same person. You're not going to turn into some religious freak. Don't be afraid of that. God wouldn't do that to you. He hasn't done that to any of us. But he definitely gives us a desire to live for him each and every day, to understand his word more fully each and every day, to live by the the spirit, not by the flesh, to set our agenda aside and to trust in his plan and his purpose for us. That's the God that we serve. He loves us so much that he gave that his only son to die on a cross. I pray that you would more fully understand the resurrection of Christ only because you spent time at the cross of Christ. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.